I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. Grief is a funny word, and and it's an even funnier thing. Not funny in a haha sense, but funny in a ironic, pained, I laugh so as not to cry sort of sense. And I think when we talk about grief, we sometimes approach it from this angle of, well, how do I deal with it? How do I handle it? How do I manage it? How do I push it down so as to not let it disrupt different areas of my life? And I think one of the things I've learned in doing this series on healing is that healing isn't just, oh, I'm done with that. Wash my hands of it. Move away. It's over. Healing is being able to arrive on the other side and look back. And like Dr. Bob Schutz told us in one of our earlier episodes, be able to tell the whole story from start to finish with a straight face, be able to tell the whole story from start to finish without reopening the wounds, be able to tell the whole story from start to finish and notice the moments where God was present and where hope abounds and and be in the midst of the moment you're currently in while telling the story and know that you'll be okay. And yet if you, if you put that idea, if you put that journey against grief, the loss of a loved one, the change of life circumstances, a dream no longer delivered, whatever grief it might be that you're holding on to or grief that you're experiencing, the journey of healing, I think, looks a little different when one is grieving than, say, when one is struggling with an addiction or when one is trying to process information about their past, when one is handling a wound that just doesn't seem to stop bleeding. That grief is this whole other animal, almost like this bear in a cave that wakes up from time to time and rears its ugly head and starts to attack, not a cuddly teddy bear that you can just hold on to and hope that it'll bring you some small comfort. My, my analogies are getting away from me and I'm, I'm talking in circles about grief because it is such a hard thing to process. It is such a funny word to try to dig into. And I almost felt silly. Okay, let's try to talk about how we heal from grief because I don't think you can. I don't think you can heal from grief. I think you can just be a little further removed from the immediate pain of it. And that the healing journey, when it comes to a grief that we carry, especially with regards to death and loss of a loved one and and burying, especially say a child, That the only way to heal is not to, I'm going to put the grief on the shelf and never look at it again, but is to recognize that the grief is now a part of you, that the grief is now almost like this thing that you carry in your backpack and is forever going to weigh upon you. And some days it's going to feel heavier than others. Some days the wave's going to crash harder. Some days the fire is going to burn hotter. And how do we harness ourselves in such a way to where the grief does not control us. Is that perhaps what it means to heal? We've had these conversations about healing. We've had these conversations about grief and we wanted to do so in the context of stories. We wanted to help talk about healing in the context of people who have walked through a healing journey, people who have arrived on the other side and are able to then tell their story with that clear head, with that focus and offer their insights into how hope was found in the midst of the heaviness. Jenny Hubbard lost her child in the Sandy Hook shootings. Jenny Hubbard is a woman who has walked through the fire 
in such a harsh and real way. And, and Jenny Hubbard has arrived at a place where she can tell the story, share about her child, share about her life, share about what she's doing now, having found healing and having found peace, not because she pushed it off to the side, but because she learned how to carry it. It's a beautiful conversation today. I do want to make sure that you know that today's conversations will include discussion about a school shooting and the death of children. And if that is too heavy for you to carry, it's okay to turn it off. If the conversation is, is too difficult to listen to, then you are welcome to walk away. There's plenty of other things that you can go listen to in this healing series, as well as more stuff coming next week. This is all part of our Ave Explorer series on healing. We really love these conversations and we really think that they're beneficial to a lot of people and we hope you have enjoyed them too. You can link to the show down in our show notes to Spotify and Apple Play and Google Play and send it to your friends, share the link, give it a rating and a review. Follow us on our website, AveMariaPress.com and you won't miss anything that we've got coming in our healing series still. But for now, we'd love it if you'd sit back and enjoy this conversation, this beautiful conversation with Jenny Hubbard on grief and healing. Jenny Hubbard, welcome to Ave Explorers. Thank you for having me. Round two. Sorry about that. I, uh, folks, I forgot to hit the record button, but we caught it. We caught it early enough. Jenny, if I were to bump into you on an escalator, like one of the long ones at DFW that takes a while, who would yeah. I have just met on that escalator and, and who would I be becoming friends with by the time we got to the top? Yep. So I am Jenny Hubbard. You would have met a mom of two. My oldest is now in college. He's 18. My youngest, six, died tragically in a major public event, a school shooting in 2012. And in her memory, we're creating an animal sanctuary where truly God's graces and, and God's majesty shines incredibly bright. Mm -hmm. And I have had the privilege of seeing the best in the world by writing and speaking and just the people that I've that I've encountered. I love that your perspective is I've seen the best in the world after what many would and you know I'm a mom of a of a kindergartner who I literally just picked up from school after what had to have been the worst moment. I mean I I I truly cannot even imagine and I don't even want to really try but I do want to talk about it. And yeah. if you'd be willing to share with us your story, because obviously yeah. healing often comes from from trauma. This whole series is about healing. Healing comes from a wound. If you yeah. could take us back to that day and tell us a bit about, well, first off, let's let's zoom out. Before we get into that, tell me about Catherine. What kind of a kid was she? Tell me about Catherine. <laughs> so Catherine was, if if you can picture the kids, and I know it's hard because there's been a lot of, mm -hmm. of school shootings since Sandy Hook, but if you can picture the kids at Sandy Hook, Catherine was the little redhead. Mm. She had this hair that sort of flailed out. She was hot. Like she was always a hot kid. And so she's got, she had these curls around the nape of her neck that would sort of, you know, flare up. And she was just, she was whimsical and gentle. And yet at the same time, this fearless and determined human being, she loved deeply and she hugged tightly, but she felt in the depth of her, she just felt to her core mm. and she loved animals. Mm. That was like, that, that was, was her thing. thing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And I really do. I, I really do believe that so much of what we see in the littles, probably what you, what you see in your child in that kindergarten, first grade 
It's such a grace for all of us because I believe that's when they're really tapped into that purpose and that passion that God places in their hearts. I think about Catherine's classroom and there was an astronaut and a dancer and an athlete and they all loved each other mm-hmm. for who they were mm-hmm. and the passions that they had. And, and Catherine just, she wanted the animals that she found, whether it was a worm or a frog or a, a dog. I think she rescued our neighbor's <laughs> dog maybe a hundred times. It was constantly going back over to their yard, but she didn't discriminate. She just, she loved them all. And, and her goal in life was to make sure that they understood that she was kind mm. and that with her, they would be safe. She made business cards when she was five. <laughs> funny, funny story. They, I left the workforce when my kids were, when Freddie was born, my oldest, I was working for a pretty well-known Fortune 100 company. I was in sales and marketing, traveling all the time. I think I was home three nights a week on the road, the four and I had a great career and I loved my career, but I knew very quickly after having after having Freddie that I couldn't do what I was doing and be the mom that I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And and for I believe it's a personal choice that yeah. a lot of women that that they make that you find this balance in the stride. And for me, my balance and stride was I'm just going to take a break from the workforce. Mm-hmm. And I did. I I stayed home with the two kids and literally we went from two pretty good incomes to one. And we moved to the most expensive county in in Connecticut, (laughs) Fairfield County. Like we had nothing, but, you know, at the same time I had everything because I could see, I could really see my kids for who they were without the lens of schedules and activities Mm -hmm. and planned events. And so we had a snow day and my kids were in the family room and I thought mom of the year, I thought that they were creating business cards out of construction paper. And they weren't, they had gotten online on my laptop and they (laughs) had had logged into Vistaprint. And I heard Freddie say to his sister, so what do you want to be? Like, it's asking for your title. And she goes, well, what, what does that mean? And he said, what do you want people to call you? Hmm. She was creating business cards for Catherine's animal shelter. And her title, as she told him was caretaker, Hmm. two words. And so they got finished. Freddie had Freddie's landscaping. She had her animal shelter (laughs) and they yelled into the kitchen. Well, we need to buy these business cards. And I said, no way. Absolutely not. Your dad would kill me if he knew that I was buying business cards. Well, he gets home, he, they get his ear. And next thing I know, each of them have 250 (laughs) business cards (laughs) for these for 10 businesses. Because you get the first 250 for You free. do, yeah. <laughs> so after Catherine died, we wrote her obituary. And, you know, there's that line that says, in lieu of flowers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that for a six-year-old, you know, for, for an adult, when you're writing that, like, what was what was their cause? Who did they support? And who do you want to provide, you know, donations to? And that business card drove our decision. Mm. Uh, and we asked for contributions in Catherine's memory to go to the animal center of Newtown. There was a typographical error in my filling in the blank. I left out the word control. And I believe that that in that moment of just wanting to honor Catherine's life and her spirit and giving up control, leaving the word out of the equation was the beginning of a of a very arduous journey to peace and healing and hope and a, and a greater faith that I would never have anticipated having. 
Thank you for sharing about her. I think to my my five-year-old sits at her desk in her room with a stack of index cards and she draws. I've got a couple of them like taped up to my wall, right? And she'll just draw pictures. And it's yeah. like this abstract art that none of us know what it is, but she does. And she'll tell us yeah. one of them looks like a fish. And like when she told me it looks like a fish, I knew, right? Yeah. Like they're so determined at that age. You know, the Sandy Hook shooting was the the biggest event of of 2012. I still remember watching President Obama crying on TV. I still remember, you know, the aftermath, the news. It's been very much in the news recently with the very high profile trial, which ended, I think, in such a way that actually honors some of these families and the horrible tragedy yeah. that they had to go through with being lied about and with being slandered. Take us back to that day, if you would. I mean, I can't even... Mary Phelps is a friend of mine, and I've heard, you know, her story where her kids were okay, and it's still an incredibly hard thing to hear. So I, I can't even begin to imagine what that was like to know that that your child did not survive. So yeah. if you would, you know, just maybe what was running through your head, those mm -hmm. moments yeah. in the aftermath, what worked and what didn't work and helping you... I mean, we'll we'll dig into the healing part. I don't even know how to ask the question because it is obviously the most sensitive and tender moment of your life. But I know you're a professional and you've talked about this plenty of times and, and this is your story. So if you would, please yep. tell it. So the morning of December 14th was, it was an exceptional morning. It was a Friday morning and we were almost 10 days out to Christmas with a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. It was high energy yeah. in the house. And their dad had been gone for the week. He was overseas. He was in he was in Europe traveling for business. So he was playing, he was coming home on Friday night and you know, gingerbread houses and pictures. And you know, we had an appointment of picture people to get, you know, the Christmas picture done. And Santa was coming and it was just, it was, it was just high energy and Everybody was just falling into falling into gear. Catherine had just gotten some, I bought her some new boots and they had bells on them. Mm. And she jingle belled all the way to the, all the way to the cul-de-sac or the end of the cul-de-sac. I would always brace for this send off to school because Catherine was, was very much a home, a homebody. She did not like going to school mm. and there was always tears involved. And on the morning of December 14th, there there were no tears. Really? It was, yeah, it was just a send off where I remember locking arms with my neighbor and both of us breathing the sigh of relief mm -hmm. of, you know, she's, she's arrived. Mm -hmm. She has, she has arrived. And so off she went to school and like any other, any other mom, you know, you go home and you sort of, you know, you drink your cold cup of coffee and you, <laughs> you go, whoo, now what? So, um, there's the the norm the normal choreograph of making beds and emptying trash cans and the phone call came in that we need to get down to the Sandy get down to the school something's happened to Sandy Hook um, and by the time I arrived it was probably controlled chaos I think kids were still coming out of the school there's a there's a little firehouse that sits at the end of the drive where the school sits it was quintessential it was a quintessential New England elementary school. And so at the end of the, the drive was this cute little fire station and the emergency vehicles had, they were lined up like matchbox cards. You could not get up to the school mm -hmm. itself. And parents were starting to roll in, trying to figure out what was happening. I remember calling my dad on the way over to the school and saying something terrible has happened. And he said, well, you know, grab your, it's going to be fine. Grab your license because you'll probably have to identify your kids. 
if it's it's if it's really chaotic. What I didn't know is that the rest of the world was seeing what was unfolding while I was in the firehouse trying to make sense of where Catherine was and where Freddie was. And so when I caught eyes of other parents, we we then we locked arms and waited. Freddie was the first one that I saw and he was he was terrified because he was in the school. And so he knew what had happened. He didn't know the extent of Catherine dying, but he had heard the whole the the whole gunfire and the the just the panic. And so his first words to me was, I can't find her. You know, it's funny when you tell your kids, take care of your sister, take mm-hmm. care of your brother. We think that, you know, it's just something you say, but they take it to heart. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't find Catherine. And that was a big deal for him because not only could he not find her, but his dad was out of town. And all of a sudden, you know, this was an added responsibility. And so as they got control of the scene and they started making sense of this chaos that ensued, and it was literally clusters of kids hanging on to their teachers until their parents arrived, they realized pretty quickly that they needed to to have some sort of process to Mm -hmm. send these kids home and make sense of what I now know, trying to figure out where these other kids had ended up. And so they they took all of the parents that children had not were not down in the firehouse. They put us all in this room and we had to fill out a a it was on a piece of loose leaf, child's name, teacher's name and grade. And I'm writing Catherine's name as Freddie's sort of hanging on my arm and I'm thinking to myself, this is not but like how is this this is not happening? How is this happening? But I knew I knew mm-hmm. in my heart that Catherine wasn't, she was not going to come down to that firehouse. Mm-hmm. I just knew it in a, in a numb and sort of sterile way mm-hmm. as all this emotion was happening and people were trying to figure out and they were, they were frantic. I had this just peace, if you can call it that, mm-hmm. a stillness of like just stay right here. And so I filled out the piece of paper and Freddie and I sat and the weight of his, I can still feel his head just on my arm of we're going to sit here. And I sat there and the day was a blur. Somehow my phone got charged. Somehow I ended up sitting with a very good friend praying Mm. because, you know, as, as I've now know having companions on the way is so important Mm -hmm. people of faith that we can lean into and one of those one of those people was one of Catherine's very good friends Mm -hmm. and so her mom and I just sat and we prayed and we just waited until we were told what had happened and that you know the the governor arrived and they cleared the room of anybody but guardians loved ones or guardians or, or parents or family next of kin. And they said, if you're if you're sitting in this room, your child or your loved one is a fatality. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, it the reality of sort of this world go, operating and buzzing around me may it it all it all made sense. Mm-hmm. Like there was something wrong and my world completely turned upside down. I remember going to to find Freddie at that point he had 
he'd been taken from the room with a, from a family friend and he was sitting with our, with our parish priest. Mm. And I remember going to him and looking at him, getting in his face and, and, and saying to him, Catherine's gone and she's in heaven and we will be fine. Mm. We are going to be fine. And we packed it up and we went home. Mm. I remember leaving the firehouse and someone saying, Hey, where are you going? And I literally, I had Freddie like wrapped up. And at this point, re- reporters and you know, national media had just descended. I had, I was like, I'm leaving. I'm going home. They're like, well, no, you cannot leave. Number one, you shouldn't be driving. And number two, you can't go out that way because there's going to be an influx of media. I had no idea mm-hmm. that the world knew they didn't know it was Catherine, mm-hmm. people that were in my family or within my within my circle. They knew by what they watched on TV, but I had they knew before I did. Mm. I'm struck by that phrase, we will be fine, because I think people say that like there's that. It's weird that I'm referencing the office in this conversation, but there's a line where Holly Flack says yeah. that it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And then you realize it's not fine. But yet yeah. you you have to keep up the airs. You have to keep up the appearance. Yeah. What what I remember from thousands of miles away, and I was working in youth ministry in Chicago. No, I was a teacher. I was a, a teacher by that point. This was 2012. Was watching it on the news. And I I do remember thinking, like having the conscious thought and having the conversation with my mom at dinner this night, that, that night, that like, I really wish this wasn't on TV. Like, yes, like the world needs its news, but this isn't for us to know right now. And right. hearing you say that, like, even y'all didn't necessarily know that it was, it's not news to you. It's it's a life-altering traumatic reality that you will never not have as a part of your life. And yet we become these these news hounds that want more details and we want more pictures and we 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 almost we enjoy the chaos of it because it's it's it becomes an entertainment thing on the nightly news yep. in those immediate days I, I i can't even begin to imagine what it was like when Catherine's father got home and having to inform him of that but in those immediate days afterwards there's funerals and there's continued news coverage where was yep. your head where was your heart and and i i Again, I feel silly even asking this question, but what what was going on with your faith? Like, was there a moment where you raged at God, where you got angry, where you just, you, this isn't fair, why us? I mean, what what was happening in those immediate days? In the immediate days following, it was very, it was very quiet. It was very methodical is pretty much the only word I can think of. Mm-hmm. My family, I, we're, I'm not from Connecticut. And so my family was coming in, Matt's family was coming in. And so it, I've just now realized 10 years later, last, last year, the nine year mark, it dawned on me that I felt like it was the middle of the night when we got home from Mm -hmm. the school. And it was like five o'clock because it got dark so Mm -hmm. early. Mm -hmm. And so he, as, as family started coming in, we were getting word, uh, my my ex-husband's company had literally figured out how to get him from Switzerland back to the United States as quickly as possible. So he knew getting on a plane mm. that Catherine had died and he was pretty insistent. He said, I'm not getting on a plane until I know what's happened mm-hmm. and I know what I'm walking into. And so he came home 
at it was like two or three in the morning and met the all of the family mm -hmm. that had come into town. My brother works in emergency management and what a grace yeah. he offered us because he arrived at the house shortly after I got home and he said, no TV, mm -hmm. don't answer the phone. And he had set up, you know, somewhat of a barrier around the house where we just, yeah, we need to yeah. process. And I did laundry, believe mm -hmm. it or not. Mm -hmm. I came in the house and I did laundry and I finished the chores that I was working on when the, when the phone, when the, because you go into this autopilot mm -hmm. mode of, I'm just going to, I've got to do something. I, I think we all have mm -hmm. this, this sort of go-to response. And mine was, all right, I'm going to finish what I started here. And I remember folding clothes with my dad and saying, I can't believe this is happening. Mm -hmm. Like I, I just can't, there's a numbness. There's, mm -hmm. there's just, there's, it's just raw, broken. And there are really no words mm -hmm just wrap around sort of that feeling. The emotionality of grief and healing came much longer after because then you have the the rituals and, and the rites of burial. And so it was time to go to the funeral home mm -hmm. and plan the mass and to figure out what are we doing for a coffin and all of these things that you're just like... What? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I remember sitting in the funeral home with 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 Matt and my sister, and just saying, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Catherine liked animals, so let's use the Good Shepherd. Like mm -hmm. I, you know, mm -hmm. what do you what do you do? Yeah. It wasn't until much much after I would say probably the spring, late spring, when. I, when I really went head to head with God mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and had that conversation of what, what did you do? Mm -hmm. And it was that moment that was pivotal in my healing because mm -hmm. I got real with God. Yeah. And I think that's what God wants with all of us. Yeah. He's a loving father. He, he's not, he's not looking to check a box to say, okay, now you've, you've berated me and, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Like you're done. I think that was the moment where he said, finally, you shared your heart authentically. Mm -hmm. You know, a wound that deep, it doesn't just take a little quick Band-Aid. It's not like one therapy session. It's not one year, especially something as public as that, that then gets replayed in the news, that gets torn apart by conspiracy theorists, that your yeah. son is dealing with the aftermath because he was in the building. So you've lost yeah. one child. You've lost a part of another child. Yep. When you got real with God, right, you say that that was kind of the the trigger to the healing after being an autopilot for a while. What did that look like? Like, what was that healing journey? Did you sit down and make a list of, okay, these are the things that need to be fixed? Did you find a therapist and just immediately start digging into the crap that had built up? Like, like I think a lot of people, when we hear, okay, this awful thing happened, and yet here you are, Dr. Bob Schutz in our second episode of the whole season said that a person has arrived at a place of healing. It's never done, but they've arrived at a place of healing when they can tell the story from start to finish and and be able to to point out this happened and then this happened. Yep. One, without necessarily breaking down, but two, with that clarity of mind of being able to yep. look back with that 2020 vision. So I think you've clearly arrived at that place from my very <laughs> non-professional, merely a podcasting perspective. But what did that look like in those early days? I mean, and, and to the person who hears this, 
Like what, what did they, this is not my last question. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of jumping the gun ahead of everybody yeah. that's been listening all season knows my final question. So I'm not asking that final question yet, but like yeah. what the, you realize, okay, I need to be real with God. You are real with God. Something mm-hmm. has to change. The title of your book is Finding Sanctuary. It sounds like you're creating this animal sanctuary, but you had to find it within your own head, within your own heart. First, a sanctuary yeah. is a place of safety. A sanctuary is a place of rest. A sanctuary mm-hmm. is is a place where nothing gets disrupted. Like it is just a place of perfect peace, which is not what was going on in your life. So how, how did those early days look? The early days were very much my trying to cling to some sense of normal. Mm. I wanted, I wanted my life to have order because it was so out of order. Mm -hmm. And so a great piece of advice I was given that I often, often, even right now as, as I'm moving through a transition of dropping a kid off at school, no big changes, Mm. no big changes. And it was my brother. And he said, listen, for the next six months, no big decisions. Yeah. Don't sell the house. Yeah. Don't buy a car. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, I, I took that to heart. And so I was in the habit of spending time once I got the kids off to school of praying Mm -hmm. and reading a devotional. And it, it was tucked in my nightstand. And, you know, there was this, it was this time where I would just sit and think about what I read. Well, that five minutes before Catherine died became 50 minutes, sometimes an hour. Now it's early in the morning. I I curl up with my cup of coffee and it is my time where I just center myself in scripture and really spend time praying and, and connecting with God. But that was a slow transition. And that was because I had this this habit of five minutes of reading this devotional and referencing the scripture at the bottom of the page. That was an evolution. And Mm -hmm. in those moments of sitting now, not on the side of my bed and pulling the the book out of my nightstand, but grabbing the stack of books from my coffee table and spreading them out on my kitchen table, that time I I can look back and know that that in those mornings Mm -hmm. was where my heart was being transformed where God truly was the potter and literally mending and molding and pointing out things that I can see now were his examples to me. I found such compassion for, and, and just, I linked arms at this point with Moses and Jacob, and I could really see that their struggles were my struggles. Their doubts were my doubts. Mm -hmm. And so I think that in those formative months, sort of keeping <laughs> keeping what I've always done mm-hmm. as part of the routine led me to a place where my heart was prepared to just lean in heavily to God and, and his mercy mm-hmm. and um, ultimately his forgiveness. It is. It was not as that moment, that pivotal moment was, was not like you'd consider in in a Hollywood movie. Mm -hmm. There was no orchestras and there was no, you know, morning you wake up and you open the blinds and, oh, now I've got to get my house back together. Mm -hmm. It was, it was a a slow movement. Things like getting up to pack a lunchbox. Mm -hmm. Wow. I know now that those simple steps, doing what you were doing, what you normally do, Mm -hmm. they position a heart for true growth. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to pack a lunchbox. The first day that Freddie went back to school, I was like this, I put out everything the night before. 
And it's amazing when you put something in the light, it all of a sudden it takes on a whole new meeting. Mm-hmm. And so the night before I'd put the lunchbox out and I was like, okay, we're good. Back to school. He was going to get on the bus and off he would go. And, and we were healed. Like we had spent time getting ready. And I, you know, I see the lunchbox and I gasp like, wow, mm-hmm. here, here we go. But in that moment, I packed a lunchbox and it was not pretty and it was, it was not well composed. It was the ugly cry, get myself together when I heard the shower turn off because he was coming downstairs mm-hmm. moment of we just made a huge step mm-hmm. in retrospect. That was a huge step because I could have not packed the lunchbox. I could have stayed in bed and the world would have said completely understandable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I put him on the bus on the on the bus and I sat down and and I opened up my journal. And I opened up my Bible and you know now it was the 50 minutes of of time in, in prayer and really saw that Jesus wept mm-hmm. and that's, you know, he, he sees, he hears, and, and he knows that this is a struggle for me. So the night that I got real with God was happenstance. I was really upset because I, it was just trial after trial. There was no one and done mm-hmm. in any of this. Um, and I was frustrated at that. I was tired of feeling the way that I was feeling. I was try- I was tired of saying to people all was good. Like I was fine. I was fine. Cause I had, I had assumed this label of the good and faithful mm-hmm. parent. And so, you know, Oh, she's fine. They're fine. She's dealing with this wonderfully. And I was tired. I felt like I was putting on these airs and not at all, not at all healthy. I had, I had come home from, it was the end of the school year. They had moved all the kids to a new school. And I had gone to the author's tea and Freddie read his biography. And it was, he had chosen a piece that was written before Catherine died. And he finished his, his work. And then he's about the author comes up and I'm like, yes, we're there. We're like, it's summertime. We did it. And he started reading and he said, I have a mom and I have a dad and I have a sister. Mm. And he looked at me like, do, is that true? Mm. I have a sister. He's eight. Does it like, you know, a, who knows what he's thinking? And mm. I'm looking at him going, just keep going. We'll talk about it. Like, keep going. Keep, and my eyes are full of pooling, mm-hmm. pooling. And everybody in the room knows who we are mm-hmm. because we all were in Sandy Hook together. They're all looking at me like what, you know, that's awful. So you've got this audience staring at you. He can feel it. I can feel it. And I'm looking at like, come on. Like, I am his cloud of witness. I like mm-hmm. keep going. And he go, he looks at me like, are you kidding me? And the next line out of his mouth is, and a dog named Sammy, mm-hmm. the dog named Sammy that he was referring to had to be put to sleep two weeks later after mm-hmm. Catherine. And so here he is like, just, oh, he got on the bus to go home from this event. I got in the car and I just, I wept. I wept for the loss of innocence that he had, the questions that he, no child should have to ever have to ask. Do I really have a sister? And I got home to find a box of, that said Catherine one of two. And a second box that said Catherine two of two, they were cleaning out the school. They had finished up the investigation and they had delivered the contents of the classroom 
that belonged to Catherine. And I had had it. I was mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I think that that I had reached a point in my faith where I had the courage and the confidence to, to say to God and know, even though I didn't know or trust that he was far bigger than mm-hmm. my worst disappointment. So I had, I had resorted to going to the grocery store late at night because mm-hmm. I was tired of lying to people mm-hmm. and I didn't see anybody at night. So I had to go to the grocery store. It had been a crummy. It was one of those days where you just wanted to pack it in and watch a movie and forget that the world existed. But I had to go to the grocery store. And so I was at a stoplight at the stop and shop. And I just laid into God. Mm -hmm. The light cycled through three or four times. And I screamed, Mm -hmm. screamed that I've, I, I, will never fathom again that it was horror and it was Mm -hmm. anger and it was all of the venom that just had been boiling and building Mm -hmm. in me. And I, I ended with, and you could have stopped it Mm -hmm. and you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. And you just can't stop all this other stuff that's happening. And, you know, have I not, have I not done Mm -hmm. enough? Mm -hmm. And as I, as I uttered that last bit of just lay off God, mm-hmm. I encountered this peace that was just so enveloping. I wept. Mm-hmm. I wept, I think, for probably the first time since Catherine actually died. Wow. Yeah. It's so fascinating to hear... Stories of grief, you know, I I think back to Letitia's interview earlier this week, and she talks about cleaning a plate that had her son's meatloaf on it the day after they found him and couldn't eat meatloaf again for a very long time. Or it's like, you know, you couldn't go to the grocery store with people because everybody's going to ask, how are you? Or the packing a lunchbox. And it's those things that trigger a moment, a memory where you're reminded of the absence, like the wound that has occurred has carved out a piece of your heart, has carved out a piece of skin and the scab forms, but the scab is new skin. And sometimes it takes a really long time. And and eventually there's a scar, but even then, like we don't necessarily want to look at the scars, whatever analogy you want to use. And, and I always go back to this theological idea. That's it's really trite, but in the moments of great tragedy and woundedness, right? God doesn't permit, he doesn't allow, he doesn't permit an evil from which a greater good cannot be drawn. It's not that he causes the evil. It's not that he makes the bad thing happen, but that he can he can do something with that. That's right. And oftentimes it's, it's our own transformation. The objectively horrible thing that hurts us is not what God wanted. But if it happens because human beings have free will and that free will has been distorted, then he can still do something in the midst of that woundedness and that pain. And, yep. I, you know, your story of healing includes this this desire to do something with that, right? To find this sanctuary, to create the sanctuary in her honor, to do the thing that she loved, to provide an opportunity for caretaking. When that began, what did you start to notice in your healing journey? That what was it just now I'm making myself busy and I've got something to do? Was it this honors her spirit? This is what at five years old, at six years old, this is what she loved. And so I want to make sure that that's, that's what we know of her and that's what she lived. So I want to create that forever. How, how did that kind of give new purpose to this mm. healing journey? I can see now that, that what was the purpose of it was God's graces wrapped in mm-hmm. to 
the work that we were doing, that he in a very gentle and quiet way was was showing and continues to show me that he does. He does restore beauty from the ashes Mm -hmm. right down to the things that we were carving into the foundation of the sanctuary, our mission, our values, like those things that Catherine stood for, I now know are are what God expects of us. I didn't know it at the time. It was, well, what what best defines Catherine? Compassion and acceptance and and determination and virtues that we're called to live by are those things that we work by Mm -hmm. day in and and day out. I did not know what a sanctuary was Mm -hmm. before we started this, I knew there was a sanctuary in the church, but I really didn't know what it like. Oh yeah, it's, there's a sanctuary in the church. That's great. And then I'm, I'm working on creating this place of sanctuary, a true place of healing and is bumping up against my faith life and my discovery of God. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing that the two, they're not unique components. Mm-hmm. They're a woven thread that creates this beautiful tapestry that of, of life, of how we're how we're called to live. Mm-hmm. And the sanctuary was really initially done between when I put Freddie on the bus and it was done at three o'clock. Like I'm gonna do this. And it, you know, it's it's a nice project. And it very quickly became a place where I sought because I would discover in what I was reading, what I was praying and what I was hearing, the things that were, were materializing Mm -hmm. at the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. That was a healing journey in and of itself. In and of itself. Yeah. I think I saw the best in humanity. Mm -hmm. I would see when the land, when we first started, our first sort of big milestone was we need to secure property. Mm-hmm. We need to figure out. I had, when I had written her obituary and I had had the, I had left out the word control. What I did not know is that there was an animal it, it, donations in honor of Catherine's memory in lieu of flowers. Please can please send donations in Catherine's memory to the animal center of Newtown was how it read. And I didn't realize that the animal center of Newtown was a nonprofit mm. organization. I thought it was the pound. Catherine loved to go to the animal control center and bring the milk bones. And, you know, every, every child that loves animals, that's a field trip. So the animal center of Newtown was for women and they were working in Newtown. They received 120 some odd thousand dollars within a very short period of time. They came over to the house. They introduced themselves. They said, we received a significant amount of money. We think that a great use of these funds is for a sanctuary. To which I said, what's a sanctuary? Mm -hmm. And they explained it as a place of healing, Mm -hmm. a place where all creatures know safety and love and they're accepted. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I think I I think that we can do this. So we are our first step was to secure property. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget looking for looking for property around town. And for whatever reason, God and I connect at stoplights. Because we were really bumping up against walls. And I remember, you know, sitting at a stoplight and saying to saying to him, listen, you want me to build this place? Like, show me where you want me to build it. Because I can't, I don't know. And I, you know, I think that, you know, while it's light and, and funny, there is something 
about authentic surrender mm-hmm. that opens up God's will in in all of our lives. And so I think that the first surrender was just writing the obituary, like without even really thinking about mm-hmm. it, doing research. And I'm not saying that, that life should be haphazard, mm-hmm. but I think that in a true surrender of God, what is your will? What is your work? Show me, I will be your obedient servant. There is endless possibility. So at this light, I was like, you know what? You know what, God? You are my Lord, my Savior. Where is this sanctuary going to be Mm -hmm. built? And a year later, it was not overnight. And I still question why God doesn't act more quickly when I pray for Mm -hmm. things. (laughs) But it was a year later where we were granted 34 acres from the state of Connecticut. And, And it was in a situation where we were assured that if in my lifetime, that you know, the land would be conveyed. That was a pretty good accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And my lifetime, you know, was actually one year later. And, you know, I I really do think that it was in these quiet moments and enormous moments where God was was saying to me, trust me, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to work for your good. Mm-hmm. You may not like doing this. You know, plenty of times I would grumble and have I not grieved enough or... You know, I kind of want to just go to bed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I earned that right. And yet God still mm-hmm. in his love and his mercy showed up. has yeah. shown me over again, shown mm-hmm. up. Yeah. It's a beautiful testament to healing. And you use that line, you know, that there's beauty from the ashes. If you can go back to Jenny on day one of the journey, not just of grief, but of healing and of of recognizing that from the be- from the ashes can come beauty. What would what would that piece of advice be that you'd give day one on the healing journey, Jenny? That that I think a lot of people would benefit from. Trust, trust that God has your best interest. Mm. Trust that God is going to deliver you from this place. It may not be in the time or in the way that you anticipate. But trust mm-hmm. that God's way is far better than anything you could ever imagine. It's mm. a good word. Jenny, yeah. where can folks follow you? Where can they grab a copy of Finding Sanctuary? Mm-hmm. So Finding Sanctuary is sold at any Catholic bookstore. Fallouts fails. Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) And you can really follow me and the work that's being done at the sanctuary at cvhfoundation.org. We'll put a link for sure in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story so beautifully. Thank you. We had this conversation uh, a few months ago. And I'm recording the intros and outros for it just, you know, a week before the the show airs. And so I've had some time to sit with the conversation that Jenny and I had, had some time to go back and and listen to the conversation. And one of the things I was so struck by when I interviewed her and re-listened to it this week was that Jenny has arrived at a place where she can certainly tell the story from start to finish. In the podcast medium, you're hearing her voice. I had the privilege of seeing her face on a Zoom call as we recorded this this discussion. And, you know, when she was talking about her daughter, when she was sharing about the work that she's now doing, when she was describing the moments in the midst of this great pain and, and the moments since, there was a, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe it in, in a way that might not capture it perfectly, but 
It's the only way I can come up with. There was a, a somber joy on her face. It's a heavy thing to lose your child in such a tragic and evil way. It's a heavy thing to then talk about it for, for literally years. And it's a heavy thing to then arrive at a place where you can find the goodness of God and the presence of God in parts of the story, even though it is perhaps, and certainly I think is, the hardest thing she's ever done and will ever do. I was so, so privileged to get to have that conversation with her. It was a real blessing to be able to hear her story. And I think the insights that she offers about sanctuary and peace and healing are applicable to all of us, regardless of the grief and the pain and the wounds that we carry. We're so glad that you're listening to this Ave Explores healing series. We have a few more episodes still coming, some great stuff up on the website, AveMariaPress.com, links to all of the books from our various authors and guests and, and more that you can find out all over again at our website, AveMariaPress.com. You can find the link down in the show notes. We're so glad that you're with us on this journey. We've still got more to come. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, that you've signed up for the emails on the website so you don't miss anything. And we'll be back next week with a whole lot more of Ave Explores Healing. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.